0: Welcome to The weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director-General of the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology.
1: And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office, and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their
0: weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change.
1: In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society.
0: We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And
1: because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Machine learning and artificial intelligence methods are gaining popularity in weather and climate research. Looking ahead, they're going to be increasingly significant in improving weather forecasting. In this episode of the Weather Pod, we'll be discussing some current research problems that are benefiting from the use of machine learning with two early career scientists, Doug Rao, a postdoctoral research scholar at the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies in the U.S., and Chen Chen, a senior research scientist at the Center for Climate Research in Singapore. Both Doug and Chen are members of the Young Earth system Scientist community and provide a glimpse of the innovative research in our field being carried out by the next generation of scientists. Doug and Chen, welcome to the WeatherPod.
2: It's great to be here.
3: Yes, many thanks to, uh, for inviting us.
0: Yes. Welcome to you both.
1: So, to start our discussion, I'd like to say that this episode's been produced in collaboration with the Young Earth Scientist, uh, Young Earth System Scientist group. Uh, so, Doug, can you please tell us something about the group and its aims and activities?
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Young Earth System Scientist community, or we call it YES, is an international network of early career scientists in all um, different disciplines of the Earth system sciences. Uh, this community was firstly established in October 2010, I believe, by PhD students from uh, Earth System Research Centers across Germany. And it has since been expanded to different parts of the world. We currently crossed a milestone early this year with more than uh, 2,000 members joining the network. And the, com- uh, com- the community is completely organized by a council or a group of early career scientists across the world. We have uh, different um, organizations within the group to help develop different activities in the science working group. We have people leading different synthesized papers and also participating in different international conferences, like the WCRP, World Climate Research Program, um, scientific organizing, a scientific steering committee meeting over the spring virtually. And the vision of the E.S. is to shape the future of earth system science by fostering those international leaders that can uh, pioneer the research and actions which will help us to build a sustainable and equitable future. So it has been more than a decade since the E.S. was founded in Europe, and the alumni of the uh, community have been working at different sectors in the earth system sciences, including the global weather enterprise forum like Boran, used to be our uh, alumni of the network
1: oh cool that's so interesting can i just follow follow up a bit i i'm curious about so how, when you join how long can you stay at some point you have to leave right because you're no longer young
2: um we don't really have an exit policy <laughs> most of the times when people um, get through the early career stage that's when they get like really busy so that's when people start fading out of the things that they will um, usually participate, but yeah, to answer your question shortly, that we don't have exit policy, so you can stay on our uh, network if you want to. Uh, maybe if you're a member ten years ago.
0: Okay, let let's move to the uh, to the subject of of this uh, weatherpod episode, which is about uh, the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques. And we know there's been a real Growth recently in the use of these techniques in, in many areas of science and technology. It's been really quite remarkable that, that growth. And for example, as we heard in a previous uh, pod episode from Florence Rabier, who's Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, that uh, these methods, for example, figure, figure strongly in ECMWF's new 10 year strategy. So Um, It it really underlines how this area is really developing. However, I guess many of us may be still a little bit uncertain as to how machine learning or AI differs from the kinds of statistical analyses that have been used in weather and climate science for many years, actually. So, Chen, could I ask you to give us your take on what are the essential characteristics of machine learning AI as applied to weather and climate science, and sort of in general terms, what benefits can we expect from this approach?
3: Uh, in, indeed, uh, machine learning for Earth system science uh, is becoming an exciting field of research. Um, many world-leading climate and weather institutes, like ECMWF you mentioned, uh, initiating uh, strategic programs in the application of data science in various components of their modeling system. So compared to the traditional statistical models, I guess machine learning models could offer benefits from varying aspects. Uh, for example, traditional post processing for model simulation output is often based on relatively simple multivariate linear regression to correct model bias. But with machine learning models, such like neural network or random forest, Whereas nonlinear features in the data could be picked up. These features may have been missed by traditional statistical methods. Meanwhile, uh, machine learning models have advantages in pattern recognition and tracking. For example, state of art models and satellites can produce high resolution global weather simulations and images in huge amount of data. So compared to the traditional method, machine learning or AI models can effectively sift through all this data and extract critical information for an emergency response to extreme events, uh, such like w- uh, wildfire, uh, tornado, or tropical storms. As we know, climate model simulations require high performance computing resources. So now, machine learning models can accelerate models by reproducing, uh, re- replacing parts of the scheme that are computationally expensive without sacrificing the accuracy of the model simulation. So overall, we believe that machine learning provide a very powerful toolbox to improve climate and weather research and modeling. However, we have to bear in mind that machine learning models, especially those deep learning models, rely heavily and a large amount of data to train models. So data abundancy is the foundation to ensure machine learning models show their significant advantages, yeah.
1: Um, Doug, you've been using machine learning with uh, satellite observations to reduce the uncertainty of near surface air temperature datasets. Could you tell us a bit about the scientific problem that you're addressing and how you're going about using machine learning to solve it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So traditionally, we know that we track uh, the surface temperature of our Earth, uh, track the change of those temperature change based on the um, observations from land-based weather stations and instruments on both buoys, ships, and other platforms for the ocean surface. And this observations are all point-based measurements that it cannot really uh, cover all corners of the Earth. So we have pockets of region where we do not have those data or measurements. So um, scientists have developed statistical models to estimate the temperature at places where we do not have observation or measurements. So these methods may work really well in regions where we have really dense observation networks, such as in Europe, in North America, particularly in in the continental United States, and other like more developed regions. So because the density of the station or observation there is quite significant and we can get really a good estimation of temperature over the, those regions. But for other regions with really sparse measurements, mostly like mountainous areas or the tropics in the tropical forests, we don't really have much observation and polar regions that it's really hard to get there to set up stations and other less populated areas. So... There's some some studies, including myself, have found that estimated surface temperature um, can have large uncertainty for regions where there's not much uh, observation there. So this uncertainty may propagate into those downstream applications, such as the climate impact studies and adaptation planning using this uh, data. On the other hand, we also have um, environmental satellites orbiting the Earth since the um, late 70s. And those satellites provide that really useful thermal infrared information of our Earth's surface daily, sometimes more than once daily, and which can be used to estimate the surface temperature at kilometers to tens of kilometers scale. This uh, rich information, um, it's not perfect, of course. It is affected by the clouds and water vapors in the, in the and water vapors in the atmosphere. So um, my research mostly focuses on developing um, ensemble model that is trained using those matchup data pairs between uh, temperature observations from stations, ships and buoys, and the um, satellites observations. And once the model has been trained using this non-data pairs with observation and satellites, This model can then be applied into regions where we do not have measurements give us an estimation of the surface temperature so the result that uh, from my research showed that the new model estimation shows the reduced uncertainty in those regions with really sparse stations and i started doing this research um, in tibetan plateau uh, during my phd research and it has been modified for global land surface and now we're currently uh, expanding this work into ocean surface to uh, provide a globally consistent near-surface air temperature since um, late 70s and uh, early 1980s when the satellite observation starts.
0: That's really interesting, Doug. I guess it it poses a question in my mind. Uh, in a sense, you're, you're producing values for near-surface temperature in regions um, where the uncertainty is high and we don't know what the if you like, the correct value is. How, how do you sort of validate uh, your est- your new estimates using machine learning uh, in those areas? Presumably, you need to somehow find ways to evaluate um, if the method's working properly.
2: That's an excellent question. I got asked this question all the time, and so there are two ways where you validate the model performance. The first, um, the first way is to using those networks that are recently established. For example, there are a lot of uh, funding or developments into setting up new stations in the regions where we typically don't have measurements. For example, the National uh, Geographic, they set up an exploration and setting up stations on the top of the uh, mountain Everest. So they have new stations about since three or four years ago maybe. And there are other uh, ship uh, campaign and other measurements that have been sent out across different parts of the earth trying to fill in those data gaps and collecting more uh, observations so we can use those type of um, ad hoc or like um, more recent data uh, to evaluate the performance of my model to uh, the my estimates of the near surface air temperature where they used to have no uh, stations or measurements there but now we have. And the other way we're doing it is uh, through cross-validation. So in our model training, we um, typically uh, set up a holdout set of the measurements or the uh, true value of temperature, which we do not feed into our model training process. In this way, that uh, the model is trained based on subsets of the da- um, of the measurements or subsets of the data sets, and with this holdout the model have never seen it. So it cannot bias towards this uh, subset of the station uh, or measurements. And now once the model had been trained and then we use this holdout data sets, pretend that we do not know the true value of it and then estimate the temperature and compare our estimation with this holdout uh, ground truth data. So that gives us an indication of how the model performs for the region where we pretend has no observation, but actually we have. So there are two ways of uh, how we evaluate the model.
1: Doug, could you use it sort of the other way around? Could we do a lot of work uh, with met services trying to expand their observing networks, and a lot of the problem is trying to uh, optimize the observation networks based upon the available resources, financial resources, human and human resources. Could you use the techniques to help optimize an observing network, a physical observing network?
2: Uh, this has been uh, discussed recently between me and my, some of my colleagues, and it can actually be used to, to, to fulfill that purpose, because we know with the machine learning model, we can also uh, produce uncertainty, uncertainty of our estimates. So even um, we try our best to produce more accurate and less uncertain estimation, but there are still regions or pockets of the re, um, surface that we have high uncertainty based on our model. So um, we would advise to set up stations for those regions that it's really hard to estimate the true value of temperature. And so in a way, that can help us improve the model in the future as well and also uh, increase the representation of the temperature sampling uh, across the surface.
0: You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Let's move on to to the climate science area because, Chen, I know that in your role at the Climate Research Centre in Singapore, you've been working on forecasting the climate system in Southeast Asia. Could you tell us a bit about what aspect of the climate system you've been studying and and why did you decide to use a, a machine learning technique as opposed to other methods to carry out the research? And I guess in the end, what, what do you think you've, you've, you've discovered so far or hope to discover? Uh,
3: sure. So um, at the Center for Climate Research, uh, we're currently working on the third national climate change study uh, to provide regional climate projections out to uh, 2100 and uh, uh, varying warming scenarios for the Southeast Asia region. Uh, uh, SEA or Southeast Asia, normally we often call it maritime continent, uh, located in the heart of the Indo Pacific warm pool, plays an important role within the global climate. But the uncertain future climate could have huge social economic impact for this small yet heavily populated domain uh, with a fast and growing uh, uh, econo- economy and uh, urbanization. So here we use precipitation as one example uh, to showcase how uh, we use the data science machine learning technique uh, to look at the future change uh, in in the maritime continent domain. Uh, So as we know, uh, global warming is expected to drive more intense rainfall, but uh, its potential impact on the organization of the precipitation are largely unknown. Uh, using an object recognition and a tracking method, uh, we show that in high resolution model simulations, future summer rain event could intensify but contract under global warming. We also show that this size reduction in fact alone can explain why future climate projection uh, uh, will lead to both extremes like long drought despite uh, more heavy rainfall. Uh, currently, we're working to use a few different feature uh, recognition and tracking techniques to investigate one typical precipitation system in the maritime continent called the Sumatra scoreline. Uh, in the radar products and uh, in the model simulations, uh, we aim to better understand this particular system from a method their com- the comparison. Uh, besides the investigation on the organization and the movement of the precipitation system, uh, we also investigate the maritime continent the rainfall variation induced by ENSO phenomena in the tropical Pacific. Uh, normally, a maritime continent is drier than normal during El Nino years and wetter during La Nina years. Here we use the new cimis 6 climate model to show that models can robustly suggest that this negative and so rainfall teleconnection over the maritime continent uh, could enhance significantly under global warming and also shift to eastward along with the mean rainfall. As to the impact, so the projected strengthen of the Nino induced drought across the maritime continent. Could increase the risk of transboundary haze and heat waves during our Nino years uh, in the future. So, besides ensemble teleconnection, we're also uh, working trying to incorporate other machine learning models to discover uh, new teleconnection patterns linked to the maritime continent uh, climate and investigate their future changes. Yeah.
0: So, uh, very interesting, Chen. These uh, teleconnections between ENSO and precipitation that you were talking about, um, are a very fascinating um, aspect of the system, but how, how do you use machine learning to, to investigate that exactly?
3: So currently, well, we still use the, the previous result have been based on the traditional ENSO teleconnection method that we define like a... a a Nino Niño 3 in index and use the rainfall field to correlate or do a coherence with this index to get the teleconnection uh, uh, connection pattern. But using machine learning models that uh, what we do is that we can choose uh, different um, timing threshold to look at all the possible uh, causal relationship within the system. So not not necessarily to be uh, ENSO or particular climate drivers. So by uh, doing like a search, then later we do a a matching with uh, ENSO or with the Maritime Continental Rainfall. So this is uh, um, going on um, project using machine learning, but the basic uh, um, like a conclusion of how, um, of the ENSO teleconnection connection enhanced and the warming is a very robust result we already established using the traditional method. So our goal now is to say whether machine learning can add additional value to this uh, conclusion. If the teleconnection connection pattern using the machine learning can give us new understanding or new discovery, then somehow I guess in the future, um, b- because, Under warming, some new type connection pattern may emerge, and not uh, currently exist now, but they may emerge in the future. So what we're trying to say is if we find the new ones, then those new ones will be very interesting to study. Yeah.
1: So it's fascinating to hear about your your work in two very different areas of weather and climate science and how machine learning has helped to address these uh, scientific problems. Can we take a step back and, and consider the fundamental use of machine learn. how fundamental uh, the use of machine learning might actually be in the field of weather and climate science? So, for example, some people are actively studying whether these techniques might even be capable of replacing uh, numerical weather prediction and uh, uh, climate modeling. Can you, um, th- when we think about that, you know, are there areas in which where we are sort of, we have some radical ideas about the use of machine learning, and are we are we able to uh, apply these in meteorology? We're able to do this in in other fields, and are there ways of actually applying this in uh, meteorology?
2: Yes, you're definitely right. There are a lot of smart people uh, who are pushing the boundary of how we can use AI or machine learning models in weather and climate enterprise, or even broader in the scientific enterprise, and we. I've Seen a lot of research recently that use a uh, conv- convolutional neural network, which is a type of deep learning a model or deep learning technique to improve the skills of uh, like now casting of the rainfall and also improve the flash uh, flooding warning systems uh, in, in operation. And this is a short time scale uh, applications. There are some longer time scale applications, such as um, that I also. Uh, re- some research recently that use neural network models to accurately predict the uh, ENSO events which have uh, impacts on regional resource planning and the droughts and rainfall uh, research like changes shared. So these are all really uh, good examples of um, how the machine learning and AI techniques have been have already happened and focus on specific weather or climate phenomenon. And there are also other more radical ideas, like you mentioned, on how we can use machine learning models and how this can change or help the new uh, numerical weather prediction and climate projections. So one example that researchers have been developing neural networks that can help solve the differential differential equations that underpins all those uh, weather, climate, or more complex. Earth system models to dramatically um, enhance the efficiency and the runtime of the uh, model simulation also reduce the energy cost for running this really complicated and complex uh, system models. And moreover that we also see research uh, few infusing those first principles or the law of physics and with the machine learning or AI models to develop models that are are tailored for our understanding of the uh, Earth system and improve the prediction of that. And sometimes we'll call this like knowledge-guided machine learning or knowledge-guided AI. Some really cool example uh, in this front include the fusing of the um, conservation law, such as conservation of energy, conservation of the mass into the development of the uh, neural network that um, can help us to improve the performance of the model and make it more generalizable to phenomena that we maybe we haven't seen in our existing data, but can be really helpful in the future climate projection. So we are not just like taking models developed in the computer science and machine learning realm and tuning the parameters um, to against our data to make it fit into our earth system model. And earth scientists actually are, collaborating with computer scientists, trying to improve the model or techniques that can better uh, fit our physical system and to predict the Earth, the future of the Earth.
1: So do, do you end up with a sort of hybrid machine learning, numerical prediction system? Is that is that what can comes out of that?
2: Um, definitely, there's a lot of development in the hybrid systems. And there are also, um, basically, sometimes people add those constraints of the uh, first principle or the law of physics into the um, uh, target function for optimization which help us uh, using the law of physics or the first principle to constrain the neural network so typically you have a loss function that traditionally developed in math or uh, in statistics but now here that you are actually taking the first principle and use that to develop a loss function to help you optimize the model, uh, the neural network um, calculation.
0: You're listening to Weatherpod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I, I guess um, <clears throat> moving on from that, um, it, there are you know even more radical ideas that, in a sense, we don't even need the laws of physics in our in our prediction models because um, artificial intelligence, machine learning can. Um, detect the signals that we're trying to predict um, from large data sets rather than use the laws of physics and I don't really believe that that's going to happen personally but maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned but I I think if we know the laws of physics then it's very helpful to use them Um, and uh, you know combined with machine learning it could be really powerful and a a sort of um, consequence of that way of thinking has led on to in a way, a, a, a criticism of machine learning, um, that sometimes it it obscures cause and effect, so that, for example, we lose the ability to explain why weather develops in the way that it does. And so, Chen, I was wondering, do, do you think that losing this kind of explainability could lead to users of weather forecasts and climate projections um, somehow losing trust in forecasting? Or do some varieties of machine learning have an explanatory role? um, And how does that come about if they do?
3: Uh, Yes, definitely. uh, Explainability is one caveat of machine learning. And uh, the community is actively improving it. Um, I guess Doug later can give more comments on the explainable explainable AI uh, later. So here... Uh, What I want to say is, um, although machine learning models may be weak in their explainability by far, but one uh, does not necessarily lose trust in the model's uh, forecast skills. Um, So we have to bear in mind that uh, all models are built on assumptions and uh, approximations uh, to the truth. And no matter machine learning models, Traditional statistical models or even uh, physical equation based uh, climate models. So, we, uh, as we often see, that models are all wrong, but some models are useful. (laughs) Um, So, the best practice in my mind is just uh, to carry out model uh, validation and do inter comparison. For example, the Climate Model Intercomparison Project, uh, what we normally call cmip 3 cmip 5 and cmip 6 uh, contributed by uh, um, around 50 models. And uh, also the IRI and so forecasted plume contributed by various dynamical, statistic, or even machine learning models. Uh, with all different types of models, we could then focus on uh, the grid, Uh, model behaviors and uh, gain more trust and uh, confidence in the ensemble predictions. Uh, In the machine learning community, more benchmark data sets are available now and the model intercomparison is regularly uh, conducted. So we believe that in the future, uh, machine learning models could be both skillful and uh, uh, interpretable. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and if I may add to that, I think um... Chen has raised some really good points, and this is an excellent question that have been discussed um, by machine learning uh, experts as well as earth scientists who are using those models. So first of all, we need to always um, put our users in the center of developments. And both uh, research and real examples have also shown that developments without active engagement with our downstream users will not be really successful because you produce some data which are using machine learning models and if the user are not involved in the development process and they don't really understand how you get that like product or the data for them to use then they will lose trust no matter whether, uh, no matter whether it's a simple um, statistical model or a, a more complex machine learning or neural network models and like you said that machine learning have uh, models have traditionally been like treated as a black box models with barely any explainability, however, this um, this situation actually have changed um, recently, and it's I would not say it's true anymore. And uh, there is an active field called explainable AI or XAI, and which uh, specifically targets the explain uh, explainability issue of um, AI models. So there are different types of AI XAI techniques uh, that can help us understand how a specific uh, model performs in a certain way. For example, that we can use some technique to calculate how much contribution each uh, input variable or uh, input feature we um, we use in the model uh, contributes to the final uh, estimation. And uh, we can also estimate how much contribution each uh, specific observation um, may contribute to a specific prediction for at one time point based on uh, collaborative game theories. And so this uh, can also help us better communicate with our users um, why the model performs in certain way and how um, we get this uh, estimation. And this can help us uh, enhance their trust and in the um, next generation of developments for weather and climate data and service. And moreover, I think the XAI uh, techniques can also help us develop better models by um, scrutinizing our model with, um, again, the law of physics. Um, Alan, you have mentioned that there are, we have some firm understanding of some law of physics. And so if we have a XAI um, methods that produce, um, so let me rephrase it. So even if uh, a model produce perfect results, but the explanation from the XAI techniques runs against our firm understanding of certain law of physics, for example, the conservation of energy or conservation of math. And then we might be um, really careful and want to take a closer look at how our model performs and to make sure that there's nothing obscure happening in the under the um, black box or within the black box, if you uh, want to say that.
0: I think this has been a very a very interesting piece of the conversation, actually, on this topic, because it's certainly my impression that um the public and users of of weather forecasts and climate predictions are increasingly wanting not only to know what's going to happen in the future but also they want to know why it's happening how is it happening and i think this is a this is a great sign actually that that um users really need us as scientists to be able to, to give some explanation. And of course, even if you only use the laws of physics, it can be extremely difficult to answer questions like why a particular storm developed in the way that it did. Um, after all, we use supercomputers to solve these equations, um, so it's it's pretty difficult to figure out exactly the cause and effect even using uh, the laws of physics. But I think increasingly this ability for us as scientists to explain the way in which the weather develops, what the causes of different changes are, are going to be really important. So, thanks for that. That was a really interesting uh, re- summary, um, Doug and Chen. For that, you're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers.
1: So, so can I just could I just follow up on that a bit? Because um, you know, at the moment we're we're experiencing some really extreme rainfall events, and in some places, you know, 200 millimetres of rainfall falling in a very short period of time and our traditional our existing models ense- on ensemble systems are indicative of these extremes but they no way can they capture the um the, the number you know how, uh, f- how far away from the norm that these these extremes are can if you have enough data can you use machine learning to sort of add value to to those forecasts because we're finding, you know we see uh, you know, three, the model will produce three standard deviations away from the norm for rainfall. So it's indicative of some extreme, but it is not capturing the 15 to 30 sigma variation that we're actually observing. Can we use the machine learning techniques to enhance the the system that way?
2: I would, um, I would say it's it's a complicated answer. I would say so, yes and no. So. Well, I say yes, because a lot of people have been using machine learning to improve data assimilation. So you have a really like robust of the uh, satellite observations and um, radar measurements that can be uh, really used into data assimilation to improve the numerical forecasting and also sometimes nowcasting to um, to get those extreme events uh, to a uh, with a better accuracy, but. The reason why I said no is because the machine learning model also depends on the data. So we are seeing those extreme events like in a lot of newspapers they call it uh, that we have never seen before. So if the existing, the historical data that were used to train our model that does not capture such extremes and we need to be extremely careful of how we use the output of this machine learning model, which uh, predict such an extreme um, for the future because we like the question that Alan asked earlier. It's all come into a loop that um, since we don't have no, we don't know what's really true out there. So we need to be careful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we cannot do that. And we, especially with some uh, additional knowledge guided uh, machine learning developments, it can generalize the um phenomena or the um, how the system works um, in the weather and climate systems uh, into the future so that gives us um, more gives us more confidence uh, if you want to say that uh, more confidence into using machine learning for extreme events uh, studies and what do you think chen that's just my like two cents
3: yeah i agree with stock that this is a complicated uh, uh issue so in a way that um Currently, when we see extreme event, uh, it's a kind of the mm, mixed signal, uh, not just a natural variability, but also plus the global warming trend, um, which means some part of the extreme value come from the global warming effect. So, if we just um, develop a machine learning model or statistical model based on historical data, uh, sometimes. Uh, we may not able to reproduce uh, those very uh, high values that we just observed. Uh, But if we combine um, with some impact of the global warming, uh, maybe that can be done. So I guess um, that depend on how uh, those two components are are coupled or incorporated in the modeling process. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I guess definitely machine learning can help uh, generate, especially the generative models can help generate a long record uh, of historical, uh, like extend the historical data and to help build more robust models. Uh, but the uh, global warming component uh, will have to be uh, separate uh, incorporated in into the model. And that part is not based on machine learning. It has to be based on uh, and the the observed trend. Uh, so overall, I feel like um, th- and the prediction for the extreme value is still a challenging field, yeah.
1: Uh, th- thanks, um, uh, I th- agree totally <laughs> with, with you. Um, I'd like to start to draw our discussion to a close and, and I think you've really already touched on, on this, but I'd like to ask both of you, how you see the future evolution of machine learning when it comes to weather forecasting and climate science and start with Doug, Doug how do you see these things developing?
2: Yeah, I think uh, there has been like really remarkable development and uh, also investments from both government and private industry in how to leverage uh, the AI techniques in weather and climate enterprise. So uh, instead of thinking about what to do, I think it is more like important to think about how we want to do things or how we should move forward to do things to advance this development. So a wise person I, I, I once knew said that it is always good to build a framework instead of building a system. And uh, I, I totally agree. And so one very important development I think is already happening it's transitioning from those ad hoc development for a specific problem to a more systematic approach by um, identifying which problems in the uh, weather and climate enterprises will benefit most from the um, AI and uh, target those the innovation and developments. So such as improve the efficiency and the skills of the numerical models or how we can use AI model to better process and disseminate the data and products uh, to the regions where need those information most. And again, this needs to put users and service back into the center, how we um, frame the development. I think another development uh, in the framework should be the closer integration between uh, machine learning experts and domain scientists in climate and weather enterprise. So I was um, trained as statistician, and I often sometimes roll my eyes when I see people using statistical models uh, in a way that's not appropriate or not designed to, to be used that way. So I think this must be how uh, machine learning experts feel when they see some misuse of those machine learning models. And uh, I think the integration between domain scientists and machine learning experts is really important. So hopefully the future uh, machine learning-based weather and climate applications have at least two core developers in the the whole process, uh, hopefully more than two, uh, which which has one domain scientist and uh, one machine learning expert and the team uh, as in close consultation with the users, again, we want to put the user in the center for the development. So that's uh, my two cents. Oh,
1: thanks. And, and Yu Chen, what, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Um, so I guess uh, machine learning and AI advances very quickly towards new frontiers. Uh, they become in, increasingly popular in our field, uh, especially filled up uh, by development in more knowledge in AI increase in data volume, advances in computing hardware, and more open source uh, packages. Uh, And I believe that more climate and weather research will benefit by incorporating machine learning component. Uh, But meanwhile, uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, weather and climate research are natural sciences governed by laws of physics. Um, So uh, processes to organically incorporate machine learning into weather and climate research uh, still require more time and uh, close collaborations between machine learning scientists and the climate scientists. Uh, And we have to aim uh, on two aspects. So first uh, to better interpret the machine learning models and then also wisely use them to better understand the climate system and uh, predict its variation and changes.
0: Could I just um jump in with a very quick final question which I'd like to ask and it's been one of the f- focus of the weather pod of over the episodes to look at how the public, private, and academic sectors in the the weather enterprise work together um, and Of course, we know that data analytics and machine learning artificial intelligence um, is is developing a lot in in the private sector in big computing companies um, around the world it's a very huge development area in the private sector and I just wondered um, if you feel there is a good sort of interplay between those developments in some of the big computing companies um, in this field and some of the academic applications of this in in weather and climate do you think we are, are we working well together on that or, or could that be improved?
2: I think there are definitely more um, collaboration uh, going on. So I, as I mentioned, I work closely with uh, NOAA in the United States where there are um, collaboration between Google and NOAA trying to um, improve the uh, numerical model uh, simulations and predictions by incorporating Google researchers and NOAA scientists together with a rich uh, amount of data that can be used to do all those improvements. So that um, uh, collaboration only happens about a year or so and have already produced a huge amount of improvements. And there are also different uh, startups uh, trying to uh, spin up uh, climates and AI applications. And I think there are really close uh, really strong development in that front uh, between private and public sectors. And again, then academia is another um, front which connects the dots between different groups. So the uh, uh, climate scientists and weather um, researchers are working closely with both the private enterprise as well as the uh, public sectors in local and regional government trying to provide the information that can help you can help those um, sectors better prepare uh, their future, for example, for the insurance uh, industry and for um, city planning. I was just talking to some uh, researchers at University of Colorado uh, who are working with California, a city in California, trying to use machine learning models to improve their understanding of the wildfire risk in the region. And so that's really uh, important topic because we all know That California is on fire almost all year round now. So it's really important topic, and the close collaboration is really important.
1: Chen, did you have thoughts on that?
3: Uh, Yeah, I guess in terms of the collaborations, um, so there are active communities and organizations uh, like uh, Climate Informatics that bring together uh, scientists in the academia, government, and the industry. Uh, by sharing exciting development and uh, opportunities through online platforms and annual workshop series. Um, So next in uh, climate informatics workshop will be in spring uh, uh, 2022, hopefully in in, in person in Ash Valley, North Carolina and uh, Doug and I will co-chair this workshop. And we hope uh, that um, after the COVID, uh, we may really gain some opportunity to chat uh, with people in person. Um, I, I guess there are growing opportunities and rapid development in, in this front of motion learning. But I also feel it's very important for us to uh, stay grounded with scientific questions. Uh, sometimes uh, as a young researchers, we may get lost in in the uh, fancy, um, fascinating uh, development of the uh, technology. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, uh, like us at uh, the climate centers, we have to uh, provide a timely and uh, effective weather and climate product and services. Uh, to benefit the society, I guess that will be our main goal. Uh, and uh, uh, along the way, uh, machine learning technique will be definitely a powerful tool uh, to facilitate and also help us uh, to improve uh, step by step. Yeah. Uh,
1: thank you so much, uh, Chen and Doug, for giving us this fascinating glimpse into the new world of machine learning and meteorology and, and the activities of the Young Earth System Scientist community.
0: Yes, indeed. And thanks so much for being our first guests from the Yes community.
2: Yeah, thanks, uh, Alan, David. If I may add one more thing, if that's okay? Of course. Yeah. So um, I think there are also something I forgot to mention is in terms of the collaboration and cooperation, um, which are the growing investment from, from public sectors uh, into this domain, support collaboration, And you may know that UK Met Office has a joint center of excellence for environmental intelligence and NOAA in the US recently established the Center for Artificial Intelligence. And now I'm speaking as a developing member of the NOAA Center for AI or Artificial Intelligence that we are very keen to foster such collaborations between different sectors and one really um, Upcoming example is that we have a a virtual workshop series in September and this is annual workshop series and will continue in the future. So there are hundreds of registered attendees from both academia, government and private sectors and this um, investment are creating the future opportunities for young um, scientists like we are right now and um, yes the uh, young earth system scientist community is also organizing online learning groups around this topic to better prepare the early career professionals for that future because if for some regions, that they do not necessarily have the resources and training to help prepare early career scientists to uh, get onto the front of it. And yes, it's using virtual platforms to do that.
0: Great, thank you so much. And it's been great to talk to you both.
3: Yeah, it has been a great discussion. Many thanks for inviting us. <laughs> Our pleasure.
2: Thanks for inviting us to do this.
1: Well, that concludes this episode of the WeatherPod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month, and in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at GWEforum.org.